Hey there, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're so glad you joined us today. Have you ever had feelings that you didn't know how to express to God or to someone else? We've got good news. There's a whole book of the Bible that gives language to the deepest, rawest feelings that we have, and it's the book of Psalms. The rest of the Bible is God's words to you. The Psalms are your words to God. We pray that this message blesses you today. And if you're looking for more information about New River Church, just check us out at newriverchurch.org. Good morning. We are continuing our journey through Psalms. Robin kicked it off last week with a great start where he went over the hashtag blessed life and what that looks like and what where our hearts need to be um, in line with God and, and where we need to spend our time. So this morning, I'm going to continue in live because we have live, lean, lament, and, and lift. Sorry. And so we're going to be continuing in live with an emphasis on family and relationships. So you can go ahead and turn your Bible or your app to Psalm 127. We're going to be there. And also Psalm 128. Um, to give you a brief outline where we're going, I've divided our text into four mini sermons. And if you talk to anyone after the first one, they'll probably be like, yeah, she really like meant it because I preach one and then it like ends and I start the next one. But I promise I will tie them all together at the end. Um, this is on par for how the Psalms are written. Each can be read as an individual life application or individual prayer. So if it seems choppy at first, it is, but I promise it's going to come together. So the four topics or things that God wants us to see this morning are surrender, changing our perspective, fearing the Lord, and then loving the life that he has given us. So to give us a brief history of what type of psalms these are, these are both out of songs of ascent. So chapters 120 to 134 are songs that were sung by Jewish pilgrims as they traveled to Jerusalem for great feasts, great festivals. They're going to worship the Lord. So you can imagine this morning that we're in a group of people with our family and our friends taking this long trip up the mountain to get to the temple and to worship God. It's important that we keep this in mind. And you might be like, this doesn't make any sense. Why would we see these things? But as we get through it, we'll understand what they're really doing. These folks are weary from sin. They're longing for an experience from God. And they're readying their hearts as they go on their journey. So the first one is surrender. We're going to start in Psalm 120, um, 127. So I can't ever... Um, share a word with you without experiencing some sort of surrender in my own life, something that God brings up that I need to give up. This is true for all of us. There's always something that's vying for our attention and affection. Robin talked a lot about um, the social media and those types of things that eat away um, parts of our lives that God wants to have. So let's start in verse one. It says, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain you rise early and you stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. So the theme of these first verses, you can hear it, is unless the Lord, unless the Lord builds, unless he watches, then everything is in vain. We labor in vain. We watch in vain. We get up, go to sleep, do all the things that we do. And this sounds similar to me like Ecclesiastes. So Psalm 127 is thought to be written by Solomon and so is Ecclesiastes, which would make sense because if you read Ecclesiastes, it's a lot of everything is meaningless and pointless unless God. 
Because chapter 1, verse 2 and 3 says, Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? So he's saying everything is pointless unless God, Ecclesiastes 2.25, for without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? Which means all of our striving and living and even our eating is in vain unless he has it. Unless our lives are surrendered to him, unless they come under his plan for them, unless he sets up a foundation in the wall. Right At the time, cities built large walls to protect themselves. They had great armies. Um, they needed this in order to survive the attacks. God, people had walls around them. But even with a great city, it's nothing without the Lord, uh, the Lord watching over it. We know from Israel's history that when they stayed close to God and they unless the Lord with their lives, then Israel was protected. There were many times that they didn't even have to lift a finger and their an enemies were cast away. But once they turned from that, they would fall to pieces and eventually they did fall and split because of their decisions to live their life apart from God. Verse 1 says, we are powerless even to defend our families, to build up our homes. We can't even do that without God. It's a false sense of security to think that we can help our family succeed without the hand of God actively at work. So this could mean physically, like I build a safe house, I don't know, a fence around my yard, a ring camera, whatever. Those types of things, I establish safety, but also the type of long-term foundation. Proverbs 19.21 says, many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. So that's our work, our planning, maybe family planning and financial planning, retirement planning, all this planning and foundation building is no good without God. But these things are good, right? Like there's scripture is chock full of verses that tell us to be good stewards of our time and our money and our energy. So how do we find that balance? Well, if we look at Genesis and what it says about work specifically, when God created the earth, he created work to be good and he created rest to be good. Some believe that even when we get to heaven, when we finish this life, that we will work in heaven because that's how God originally set it up in the garden when he created Adam. Genesis 2.15 says that he made him to work it and take care of it. So God made work. Hard work is good. I often tell my boys, Harvey and Stuart, you know, when they're like, I don't want to do this. It's hard. I'm like, God made that work. You need to do it because it's important for you to get it done. God created it, but sin has distorted it. He's, it's made it a burden. Genesis says that after... Uh, the man and the woman sinned, Genesis 3.17, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. We are now slaves to the work that God intended for good. And the same struggle now lies with rest. Now we have to figure out how to work and rest. Like there's, concept, there's books and all these things written out there on like how to accomplish these things in your life because it's such a struggle. And the enemy knows that. Now that sin has broken the, that order, Satan knows that we're going to struggle to find balance in our lives. It's why we struggle with what we eat, what we watch, what we drink, how much we play, how much we work. All of these things, we know what it feels like to taste that balance. Like I can think about when I've had like a productive day, but maybe we've ended at the playground or we like ended watching the stars, like read a good book. There's a nice balance to our day that 
rarely happens. But then it's something so simple as like, I just want to do one more thing can throw the whole day. Or I just want one more slice of cake. Like those things can throw off that balance and order that God intended us to have. And sin created that scale. God never intended it to be a battle that we would have to fight, but now we do. Um, so we need, we have to build our house, our city, our homes on God in order to experience this. So that was sermon number one. <laughs> sermon two, we now need to change our perspective. If we keep reading in Psalm 127, it says, verse three, children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in court. So I looked up the definition of heritage and reward and what all that meant just means in general and then in scripture. And it says it's a, a heritage is a special or individual possession, an allotted portion. So children are an allotted portion from the Lord. God has his full lot, his full measure, and he gives us a piece of that. One definition says he gives us like our piece of our destiny and our children are a part of that. But I do not view my children as a reward. Um, there are more of things that most days it feels like they're just things that I have to care for and hope that they do what I say instead of love them. And I do love them. I really, really do. And they are a blessing and it's amazing and hard. But my heart isn't fixed in a position that says you are reward. You are intentional by God. Sometimes in my frustration, that's not how I'm viewing them. My heart isn't aligned with what God says about them. They hit more like in a convenience, like I just want you to get with the program and do what I'm telling you to do so we can move on. That's how I often view them. And I like what Paul Tripp says in his parenting book, how he describes it, because this is how I feel sometimes. He says, imagine it's the day you're leaving for vacation and you've parented your children all year long. It would be nice if they could give you a break during your vacation. Now consider what you're wishing for. You're hoping that the little sinners who needed so much of your attention the day before have been transformed during the night into fully sanctified self-parenting little humans. But you're not even seven-tenths of a mile down the road and they're already fighting in the back of the van. You begin to lose it and threaten to turn around, drive back home and cancel the entire vacation, right? Because unless the Lord, unless my perspective has changed, that's exactly what I see like happening. It's just like chaos because they're working on their sanctification too. Um, an example of inconvenience, not so much Stuart's heart, but my heart. We were at the grocery store last week. no. For background, I don't like the grocery store. I realize that it's a first world problem to be able to walk into a grocery store and have the option to buy whatever food I want, whenever I want it. And there's all these grocery stores around town. You can shop whatever kind of food you want. I realize that, but I don't like it. And I never have, not even as a kid. So I just want to get in there, check everything off my list and get home as quickly as I can. And Harvey and Stuart like to like go to the deli counter, which takes forever, and go buy the lobsters and look at all of the candy and all the snacks that I'm never going to buy. Like, they like to spend time doing those things. And this particular day, we went by yogurt, which is typical. I'm like, pick your yogurts out. Harvey obeyed, and he quickly got his yogurt. And Stuart took his time. He picked out what kind of yogurts he went. But then he didn't get, he went back to the aisle, and he proceeded to tell me the kind of yogurt he wanted for the next four grocery trips. 
next time I want blueberry, raspberry, and cookie. I'm like, okay, that's great. And then he's like, and I'd also like this, this. And then the next time, and I'm like, please just come on. Like, I just want to go home and you're being really annoying. And there's like a line of people gathering because they're waiting for their yogurt because he's like just scanning the entire like thing being like, well, have I had that strawberry? I'd really like to have that strawberry like turned into a whole thing. And there's one woman and I'm looking at her face as she looks to Stuart and she's smiling at him. Like she thinks he's cute while he's doing this. And I'm like, please just move on. And he's doesn't care about anything. Right. But it's in those moments that I'm toiling away for nothing. I'm missing chances to see his sweet heart at the age that he is doing what he does. But I'm so focused on getting out of the store that I'm like missing it. I'm just like, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, get out of here. And I view interruptions as that. Like instead of just like, hey, this took two extra minutes at the grocery store, like I'm inconvenienced. I'm allowing myself to do it. And why am I so inconvenienced all the time? Well, as a parent... I've set myself up as Lord over their lives, and then therefore any misstep that we take, even something as silly as yogurt, is now like I'm viewing this as a change, like, oh no, this is devastating for the day, and it stirs up this selfishness and frustration. But Jesus tells us in Mark 10, 13 to 15, how to view children and what he thinks about little children. He says, people were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place hands on them, But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Children had VIP access to Jesus because their hearts were in the right spot, right? Like Martha and Mary, when the two of them invited Jesus over for dinner, I'm Martha like the majority of the time I'm like there's all these things we got to do we got to hurry up we got to clean the house we got to cook all the food and Mary goes straight for what's important and Jesus said she chose the better thing and so that's what God is asking us to do that's what children do he wants us to see that children are a good thing like arrows in the hands of a warrior a warrior so if they're an archer they cannot be a successful warrior without a quiver full of arrows they need that I need the blessing for my life. God has blessed me with children. I need them in order to live the life that God has called me to. So when I view children with a misaligned heart, my own children, I miss the blessing that can come from this. And then the other thing out of this passage is not only if we have children, but also viewing the children of God um, or those around us that have been made in his image. Um, that might be like, so the body of believers were his children. And then we have others who haven't come into the fold yet, but have also been made to be loved by God. Are my thoughts and attitudes about those other people? Are they of annoyance and inconvenience? I remember at work sometimes I'd be like going down the hallway and I'd see somebody coming and I'd be like, I've got to go to the bathroom. So that way, like I avoid because I got stuff that I've got to do, or maybe it's not inconvenience. Maybe it's bitterness or resentment or I'm holding a grudge, like I can't enjoy the blessing of God's people if this is the attitude of my heart. If against those he's created in his image, if my heart is mangled, then I can't see the children as his. I can't elevate them. I can't see past my own stuff and place the value that God has placed on those he's created. Jesus gave us the perfect example of this when he hung on the cross at the end of his 
physical life on earth. There, were, there was someone convicted on this side and someone on a cross convicted on this side, and Jesus is hanging there. And in Luke 23, 39 to 43, it says, One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said? Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into the kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Even in the man's last moments, he deserved the punishment he was receiving. He had sinned. He had broken the law. Whatever he had done, he deserved to die. Jesus said, I see value in you and you can come with me. It's not too late for you. That's how Jesus views all of us. That's how Jesus views everyone that hasn't accepted them until we breathe our last breath on earth. God's like, I have a plan for your life. And in that last moment, this, that man who accepted Christ, he fulfilled like that plan for him. And this is how we've been called to love, to live and love and treat others. So our third text this morning, I told you it'd be kind of choppy, is fearing the Lord. So we're going to start in 128 in just a second. I was really excited when I started digging into this one because I've struggled over the last year or two of what this phrase means. I see it and I trip over it because either I don't understand it in context or I don't know why it's telling me to fear God when I'm also supposed to love him and know that he loves him or he loves me. And I think back to a scene in The Lion, the Witch of the Wardrobe, if you've read the book or seen the movie, of how I understand fearing God. And so Lucy and Susan, the kids are there, they're asking the beavers, if you've seen it, then you know what I'm talking about. Um, they're asking them about Aslan the lion, who, who that's God. And it says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, says Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall fear, feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And then Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. So that's how, that's how God is, and I'll explain that more. That's how he is for us. It's not safe, but he's good. He's a powerful and great God, but he's good for us. So I'll use, John Piper wrote a good article about it. There's, he has a lot of great stuff on fearing the Lord, and I use that as kind of my explanation here. So we'll look at Old Testament, New Testament really quickly. So in the Old Testament before Christ, we have the law. So here's a list of the bad things that will happen if you don't fear God and don't trust him. And here's a list of the good things that happen if you do. And we saw that again with the Israelites. We saw them walking to God. Everything's going great. As soon as they would turn the other way, terrible chaos would happen. Okay. In Proverbs 28, 14, it says, blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. So fearing God is contrasted with a hard, unreceptive heart. And that's the first line in verse one. It says, blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in obedience to him. So you can't walk in obedience if you have a hard heart. You can't hear what God's trying to direct you towards. We need humility and we need to obey. So then in the New Testament, in Philippians 2, 12 to 13, it says, so now we have law. Now let's look for the other half of it. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. John Piper says, 
We should fear and tremble because God is working to keep you. The sheer awesome presence of God in our lives, working for us, not against us, should produce trembling. We should fear in the sense that we seek refuge from God, away from God's terrible wrath. God's grace in Christ is the refuge from God's wrath outside of Christ. Say that again. So God's grace in Christ keeps us safe from the wrath, God's wrath that we deserve outside of Christ. There's a terror outside of Christ and there's a different kind of trembling inside of Christ. And to explain this a little more, in Hebrews 12, 25, it says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So there's our security. We have a firm kingdom. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And John Piper says, in other words, the same thing is here. We are safe. We have a kingdom that can't be shaken. But our God is a consuming fire, and you don't come near him without reverence and awe. So a humble and obedient heart is going to bring us to a great and mighty king. He's going to use his power to free us from sin. So we have that. We're going to accept his grace. And then because of all the great work that he's doing and all the changes that we're doing, we are in awe of him. We're trembling because we're like, God, you are so great. We need each part of God in order to understand what he's doing in our life, in order to trust him. We need all of those parts of God. So hopefully that makes sense. And now jumping into our text with that with us, it says in verse two, you will eat the fruit of your labor. Blessings and prosperity will be yours. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Yes, this will be the blessing for the man who fears the Lord. And I thank Matt so much because he like summarized this whole section. So he did a fantastic job without even knowing that this is what we were doing. He did. So thank you, God, also, because God aligned that so perfectly. So it says in verse 2, you will eat the fruit of your labor. Finally, you're going to work and you're going to get to enjoy it because you feared the Lord. You've unless the Lord. You've come under him. You feared the Lord. And now when you work, man, it tastes good. Like I'm getting to enjoy it because it's devoted to the Lord. So unless we have that obedience, then we're, it's in vain. And this is how God intended it in the garden. So before sin, Adam walked with God. He spent time with him. He worked, and then he enjoyed it. He enjoyed the fruits of his labor. And then in verse 3, so both the wife and the children, it says the wife is a fruitful vine, and the children will be like olive shoots around your table. Both the wife and the children are growing. They're producing fruit. You have a home that's not stale. The attitude in the home isn't dying or there's not a lot of conflict for the person who fears the Lord. They see growth. And they were, wine and oil were seen as essential parts of life at that time. So around the table, this person has reason to celebrate because they're devoted to the Lord. They have a reason to trust and love him. So when I read scripture, you know, God uses it to cleanse our hearts. So, so when I first read this through this, I was like, all I got to do is fear the Lord and then Harvey and Stuart won't sin anymore and Chris won't sin anymore and we're going to have a great time. But I can't be perfect this side of heaven and neither can, can they. But the point of this is, is if I'm obedient and I'm accepting of God's grace and I'm in awe of him and my life is faced towards him, then he's going to start to weed all, all of that stuff that that we argue about that doesn't really matter. Um, Chris and I once had a doozy about radishes. It was a legitimate fight and it was like pretty bad. And 
we obviously were like not fearing the Lord that day and not trusting in him because Satan was like, this is a good one. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do them in with this stupid radishes. So, but if, if we're both like seeking the Lord, then we're not going to let little things like that get under our skin. We're going to be able to create a more peaceful environment. My own worries and anxieties that I have that flow out of me and flow into my kids, unfortunately, that stuff will get, begin to go out because I'm, I'm growing in the Lord. I'm receiving what he has and that's what's going to come into my house. And I will take and I will receive a peaceful home, not because I'm organized or have planned really well, but because we've built our house. Like we sang, we've built our house on God and that foundation isn't going anywhere. So our last of the four points that we have is loving the life that he's given us and this benediction that uh, these pilgrims are seeing as they're taking their journey in verse five and six of 128. May the Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you live to see your children's children. Peace be on Israel. So blessings from Zion, when they're saying that here, when we say like, what does that mean when we receive them? They're blessings that come straight from heaven, not just something earthly, but directly from the Lord. One commentary I read said, blessings out of Zion are the best blessings, which flow not from common providence, but from special grace. So these are things that they're just from God. These are wow things. They're going to, all the earthly things that like burn up, these are going to pale in comparison to that. So in, there's two things in verse five. There's one, so there's a blessing that we're going to proclaim and receive an eternal blessing from God. But also there's a blessing where we are speaking this out. They're praying this out to be able to receive a kingdom vision to know the things that God is doing right now in us. So may we see the prosperity. We're saying, God, allow me to be able to see heaven collide with earth to live life not apart from you or where you're in your lane and I'm in mine and I acknowledge that you're there, but where you actually where you step into my life and I spend my days aware of these best blessings because I want blessings direct from the source. And finally, in verse six, it says, you'll live to see your children's children, peace be on Israel. So yes, we want to live to see generations and generations. We I can do that when I let go of my worries and my anxiety and my fear and I can not be burdened by the things of the world and I can live a long life where I'm loving the Father, where I can see him and trust him. And this isn't just a reference to see the success of my children, but also the the heavenly successes of what God's doing in the church, this church, and outside and believers all over the world. Like we want to live to be able to see that, to see peace of our generation, living in grace that we've been giving and teaching others to do the same is what we're proclaiming here. So why would the pilgrims like sing about all of these different topics? It seems kind of strange that they would be singing this as they head up the mountain. They don't really have like a songy tune to them. Um, but if we read them backwards and we see the path that we've taken, we can see that God cares about family. He cares about our work. He created it. He cares about how we're protected. He cares about how we treat him and how we treat others, right? He set up all of these things. And so what they're doing is they're singing to God and giving him these things. He's established an order and desires that we don't waste our lives feeling hopeless 
or like we did everything in vain. His way brings freedom and purpose. So I was thinking about if I were to sing this in Case Mountain is shorter, but if I were to like walk up Case Mountain and sing these things as I go up, by the time I'd get to the top, I would have, I would have a lot of pep in my step. I'd be like pumped up about an encounter with God and I would have surrendered all of those things and offered up those part of my lives. I would have claimed what promises, what he promises to be truth. My heart would be ready for an encounter with God by the time I got there. I would have cultivated a life where heaven and earth would be real, all one, like how he intends it to be, and I would be living a life out of that. So at some point, I have to take accountability and say, I'm tired of living this way. I'm tired of working in toil. I'm tired of sin in my life. I'm tired of these things that hold me. I choose to surrender. I need to make heart changes. I need to fear God and be thankful for the life that I have, that he's given me specifically, because he cares about my life. He has great intention for it, and he wants to give me the ability to see that. I mentioned when we were talking about changing perspective about inconveniences. Currently, right now, God is laying some stuff out and I'm fighting it. And I've been feeling like super inconvenienced lately. I'm doing a lot of things that are way out of my comfort zone that I don't think is fair that I have to do. I'm frustrated and irritated by it somewhat. But God's like, hey, can you just change your vantage point on this? Can you just look at this the way that I have? Can you look at this person the way I have? Can you look at this meeting or this task the way I have from it? And I might not love it, but I know that there's peace on the other side of that, that if I just soften my heart, that these inconveniences will become rewards, that maybe I'll actually get to enjoy some fruits of my labor. That would be like really sweet to taste, to taste those best blessings, to know that um, the blessings and prosperity that are promised here, they're mine to have. It wasn't just for them. These are ours. It's mine for the taking if I, if I want it, if I align my life with him. I have a choice how I view my family and those around me. I have a choice to love the life that I've been given, not someone else's, but the one that's for me. And I'm going to close with one last thing. I don't want us to come out of this text and think like, wow, this is a to-do list of things that I really need to do. I need to get home and start reorganizing my house and fearing the Lord and surrendering all these things and got to change the way I look at my kids or whatever it might be. Like, I don't want us to see that. If you're feeling any condemnation, that is not from God. He did not, there's nowhere in that where God was like, feel bad about this. And I'll be at first to admit, and maybe it's just me, maybe you guys read it for what it was, but like some of this sticks out as ways that I can't succeed and ways that I'll never be able to attain on earth. Yesterday, Doug sent me um, a different reading of one of the verses as a way to be like, look how cool this is. And it's the New King James Version of verse 3 says, your wife shall be like a fruitful vine in the very heart of your house. And my first thought when I read it was shame. I was like, I will never do this. This is not me and I can't do this. But that wasn't from God. He didn't intend me to do that. I was like, get behind me saying, this is not you. This is not you. This is God's word. This is his promise for me when I come to him. He's not telling me to go out and do a bunch of things. He's saying, you just need to come to me. You need to give me your life. I'm going to order it because I'm the one that ordered it in the first place. Sin has distorted that for you, but I've set up a good order. And instead, all you have to do is trust me. I'm faithful to you. I'm going to give you a good life that I've made for you. And, and I'm saying, God, like 
I want to be confident to see your hand at work. He values my life. He values, values your life. So please hear that that's God's heart for you. Well, that about wraps it up for today. We pray that today's message encouraged you. And if you would like more information or just to contact us, go to our website at newriverchurch.org. Thank you.